This week I have a bonus episode for you from Adam McCullen's podcast, The Innovation Show, where he interviews one of the most widely known and influential thinkers on management, whose work continues to be used by leaders worldwide, Charles Handy. A former professor at the London Business School, Charles Handy authored many books, with his most recent book titled The Second Curve. It was episode 54 of this podcast, Manage Self, Lead Others, where Aidan McCullen was my guest. He spoke about the ideas in his recent book, Undisruptable, and the importance of the S-curve cycle in human performance. Charles Handy not only referred to the S-curve in several of his books, but his most recent title is The Second Curve. So many gems in this conversation. The road to Davy's Bar story, the importance of reading the Greek tragedy Antigone, how to avoid making a category error of turning efficiency into purpose, curiosity as the start of creativity, and then Handy nails it. The difference between managers in charge of things and leaders in charge of people. A rich resource, I couldn't help but share this amazing conversation with my listeners. Because duration is over an hour, this is part one of two 30-minute episodes. Now it's over to Aidan McCullen to introduce Charles Handley. Happy listening. What does the future hold for society? Today's guest is one of the giants of contemporary thought. In the second curve, he builds on a life's work to glimpse into the future and see what challenges and opportunities lie ahead. He looks at the current trends in capitalism and asks whether it is a sustainable system. He explores the dangers of a society built on credit. He challenges the myth that remorseless growth is essential. He even asks us whether we should rethink our roles in life as students, parents, workers, and voters, and what the aims of an ideal society of the future should be. Provocative and thoughtful as ever, he sets out the questions we all need to ask ourselves and points us in the direction of some of the answers. It is a great pleasure to welcome author of many, many titles, but the focus of today's show, The Second Curve, Charles Handy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to meet you. It's fantastic to have you on the show, Charles. It's a real, real honor. And thank you for welcoming you here in your home in London. I wanted to start first with the idea of the second curve. I loved the intro to the book where you learned that history and tradition can be a prison as well as a thing to be treasured. A looming disaster is often needed to allow change from the status quo. Well, the status quo is your comfort zone. I'm a great believer in boredom, because if you get bored, you really have to do something about it, as I tell my children, or you say. Um, you're not allowed to be bored in my home. You've got to get out of it. You've got to go do something. So being bored is a great incentive. If you're in charge of anything, if people get into their comfort zone, you must kick them out in some way which is why I value people like you coming and asking me uncomfortable questions. I got to think up new answers. I can't just give them the same answer all the time. Because <laughs> the I remember sitting at the Synod of the Church of England, for all sakes, and uh, they were debating the possible ordination of women, which was certainly uncomfortable for most of the men there. And eventually one of the men stood up and, and said, Mr. Chairman, he said, addressing the Archbishop, why cannot 
the status quo be the way forward, as it often is in our great country. And it seems such a silly thing to say, but he really meant it. The status quo can never be the way forward, it's only the way to stand still. And standing still doesn't get you anywhere. So you've got to, in other words, move. But saying to people, change, doesn't seem to help people. It's a, change is a frightening word to most people. So I came up with the idea of the second curve as a means of saying, move on, but move differently. And that seems to resonate with people more, because they all feel that they can do things differently if they were allowed to. So that's my message. Think different. Don't think more. And this is one of the big problems with success, isn't it? That we get to this point of success and we have a difficulty of seeing a different way of being. And the story of Davies Bar really resonated with me, but also resonates with people as a way of thinking about the second curve. Well, I find that stories, particularly if they're sort of visual stories, stick in people's minds. They don't always remember the point, but they do remember the story. <laughs> and yes, Davies Bar, I, um, I run into trouble. People actually think there is a Davies Bar and they try to get directions to it. <laughs> And I say, no, it's a mythical bar, but, uh, you know, it's a metaphorical bar. But I do, I meet people a lot, a lot there who say, oh, my goodness, if only I had done this or that. But I can't, you can't go back from Davies Bar. Once you're in Davies Bar, you're stuck. You can only move forward and there is no forward. So you have to have just a drink and wish you'd taken that turn earlier. And could you tell us the story about what actually happened to you at that time in Ireland? You were in Wicklow, I believe. I was in the Wicklow Mountains. I was going to a voker and I'd just forgotten the way. I hadn't been that way for some time. So I saw him in by the road. So I, I stopped and I said to him, is this the road to a voker? And he said, indeed, it is. He said, you just go up this long hill. And when you get to the top, look down and you'll see down at the bottom of the hill, you'll see a little stream and a bridge over it. And the other side of the bridge, you'll see Davy's Bar. You can't miss it because it's painted a bright red. Have you got that? So I said, yeah, long hill, look down, bridge, Davies Bar. He said, right, well, three kilometers before you get there, turn right, and that's your road. So I thought, oh, okay. He's told me I can remember that, so I got up. And then I thought, a bit odd. I saw Davies Bar, so I thought, well, three kilometers before I get there. Well, I better go down there and come back and count three kilometers. So I did that, and I saw the road. But blow me down, the road was before I'd reached the top of the hill, the other side. The wretched man hadn't told me that the road would go before I could even see Davies Bar. And that was the problem. Because once you get to Davies Bar in real life, you can't turn around and go backtracking. Life isn't made like that. So you're trapped. Somehow or other, you've got to remember that your railroad leaves before you see Davis Bar. If you wait, if you see Davis Bar, it's too late. And too many organizations that I know, and too many individuals that I know, they're on a track and they can't get off it. Because the trouble is, they have to start preparing to get on this new road before they see Davis, before they reach the top of that long hill. That's life. But at that point, when they should be changing, all the messages are, they're doing very well, thank you very much, so keep on going. You know, where you are is the right way, keep in your comfort zone, the status quo is okay. 
But of course it isn't, and they discover that too late when they're sitting in Davis Bar having a last drink before the end. Because most organizations, most individuals don't change until they really have to when they actually see the end is nigh and they, they will die or fail if they don't change. But it's too late. You've got to change before you have to leave the party where the going is still good. So the only way to do that is to keep itchy, itchy, thinking of new things all the time so that when you get the chance, you can move. I mean, I quote Steve Jobs of Apple as a wonderful example of a person who always thinking about the next curve. I gather he was not a very pleasant personality and difficult to work with, but goodness me, he must have been upsetting to his uh, fellow board members. <laughs> can you imagine? Many started off, the Macintosh computer was what they sold, and it was doing very well. And he walks in one morning and he says, gentlemen, I know we're doing very well, but we're going to use our profits to invest in a new system. We're going into music. We're going into an iPod. And then when that was going quite well, and he came in and he said, new idea today, we're going into the telephone business. And they said, what are you talking about? We're in computers. He said, no, 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 we were in computers, but now we're in telephones. That's the future. And Nazi's doing very well, and he comes up and he said, no, it's not an iPod, it's an iPad. And everybody says, so what's that? He said, well, it's like a computer, but it's not a computer. You carry it around with you in your pocket, but it's not a telephone. So what are people going to use it for? And he said, believe me, by the time we've got it going in about three years' time, everybody will want an iPad. They'll be walking around with them. They'll use it as a, night a notepad and they'll use it as a mini-computer, but they can't use it as a phone, so they still have one of our phones. And, of course, he was always right, amazingly, but it was his quizzical habit of always thinking one step ahead of the present that must have made him very, very irritating. And in my own life, I was a very uncomfortable husband, I think, because I was always itching to do something else. I was never comfortable just doing the same thing every week or living in the same house. And I was always thinking about new possibilities, dreaming, you might say, until eventually it actually happened. And I resigned by mistake from my job, <laughs> which you would think nobody else does, but it happened to me. Uh, I was working in a funny job, running a little conference center in Windsor Castle. And my boss was the dean of St. George's Chapel. Anyway, he came to me one day and he said, your contract's got a year to run, but we ought to be thinking about looking for a successor. And he said, we've got a general who's very interested, but he can't wait for another year. So I said, being a kind chap, I said, well, you know, if you and the other trustees want me to go a little early, by which I meant the month or so, I'm sure we could, we could think about it. On that evening, one of the other trustees rang me up and they said, Charles, I'm terribly sorry to hear you're leaving. I said, I'm not leaving. He said, oh, yes, you are. The dean's just come in. He said, you've resigned and we've discussed the date for your leaving party. <laughs> and obviously the dean and my boss had taken me seriously and, and thought I was actually going to leave. So I had to go back and tell my wife that I'm sorry, I've resigned apparently. <laughs> and the children had to change school. We had to leave the house and everything. So she was not very best pleased. And she said, well, now you've got to live up to your own bloody books. You've got to start your second curve. 
She said, you always said you wanted to be a writer, so off you go. And it was very tough because changing out of your comfort zone to do something you haven't done before is uncomfortable, like you don't have enough money or your old contacts are no use anymore. But anyway, you struggle and it takes time, but eventually you take off like any new business. And I'm very glad in the end that I did, but it wasn't very pleasant for a bit. And my wife would say, I hope you're not going to have any more new ideas or more resignations by mistake. So it's helpful to talk to your friends if you're going to do upset their life. <laughs> and this reminds me of something you talk about, which is the contract with ourselves. It's one of the essays from The Second Curve. And you once described your life to an Indian guru, and you told him about all your adventures, etc. And he said to you, you seem to be very busy going nowhere in particular. And it seems incredible to hear this now after how much you've achieved in your life. But that's the case for so many people. I mentioned to you, I lecture in Trinity College, Charles, and I tell the students not to make decisions based on the opinions of others, but make them for yourselves. And you mentioned, for example, how Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, said the best gift a parent can do for a child is die young. What's your advice for parents out there, for people who are encouraging their children on one hand, and then also on the flip side, for students, people you've lectured to, for example, in business schools, there's two sides to the coin here, the parent side and then the student side about how to take charge of their own lives. I also tell my students that luck is a big part and actually knowing when to chance your luck is really quite important. I say the thing is, you know, and the funny thing in life, apples fall into your lap and you shouldn't just take no notice. You should, If they look juicy, eat them, you know. But the problem is uh, you can't tell when the apples are going to fall into your life. It helps a lot if you go and stand in an orchard. If you want to go into the acting business, go to cultivate your acting friends, go to as many theatre do's as you can, stand in the, in the theatre orchard world, and then apples will fall into your life. If you want to go into, into technology, haunt technology conferences. And then one day somebody will say to you, oh, just the kind of guy I need. And that's the apple, and bite it. You've chanced your luck because you've gone and stood in the, in the orchard. And for parents, I would strongly advise them to get out of the way. Don't die necessarily, but don't try to influence your children too much. It's their lives, and they have to make their own deals with life. And remember, everything that you do is a good learning experience. My father was a country parson in Kildare in Ireland. I joined Shell, and my parents didn't try to persuade me not to, though they clearly disapproved. They wanted me to be a country parson and perhaps promote to myself to be a bishop one day. My son, the bishop, you know, that's what they wanted. But I decided by then that I wasn't going to be ever go to church again or I was not going to be poor again. So I thought an oil industry career would be very nice. Um, anyway, I was posted by Shell, but my first job was going to be in Singapore. And my parents came to see me off at the airport. My mother said as I got out of the car, she said, never mind, dear, it'll all be great material for your books. <laughs> books, mother, I said. I'm going to be an oil executive. What are you talking about books for? She said, I see, dear, which mothers do when they mean they don't see. She knew something that I didn't, obviously, that I was really going to be a writer. And she was absolutely right, because the stories I picked up trying to run bits of shell were incredibly useful when I became a teacher 
in the London Business School because they love your teachers to tell stories of their own lives, particularly if they're disasters, as most of mine were. And so basically I used to say to them, you've got to make your own mistakes. And my wife would take telling me, every problem you meet, there is behind it a hidden opportunity to do something different. So every experience is useful. It's material for your next book. I had a, a stroke a year ago, which knocked me out of action. But I realized as I lay there, there's nothing moving and no muscles left. This was going to be great material for my next book. <laughs> so I carefully noted down everything that was happening to me at the moment. And so I'm writing a new book called The Dead Man Talking. Brilliant. Which is basically about being totally dependent on other people, being effectively dead, not independent in any useful way, and uh, needing somebody else to hold on to you while you walk, needing somebody else to dress you, needing somebody else to wash you. I mean, it's really quite difficult and quite humiliating at times, but it's all an interesting experience which I can write about. So my second care was talking about being out of action, really, which is interesting for somebody who always wanted to be in action. I mean, I was quite an active member of society, and now I'm just a spectator. I'm sitting in the theatre watching other people perform, which is very good for me because I have to keep my mouth shut. So that's why it's so nice to be talking like this, because basically I'm a storyteller and a talker. It's funny because in the second curve, you preempted this. You said, and I agree massively with you, that society shuts away their elders and there's so much wisdom in the elders. That, that experience, that scar tissue has so much to teach the next generation and they can build upon that wisdom. Yes, well, you hope your, your experiences are relevant, but uh, it's quite good to be asked about your own experiences and what you learn from them. People ask me if I do consultancy. I say, no, I do Socratic counseling. I refuse to go into organizations. I, I like to see them through the eyes of, of their chief executive or one of their senior managers who come to see me. So it's their organization I'm talking about, and I question them. And I say, what's your organization all about? And they say, it's about making a profit. And I say, why are you making a profit? And they say, to make more profit. And I say, why? And I keep asking why, and they increasingly find it difficult to answer. And in the end, they come to an answer that actually is beyond selfishness. They say in order to improve society or to make my customers happy or something, something that deals with something other than themselves, because great organizations have a purpose beyond themselves. Let's talk about that purpose, because you mentioned how the financial downturn was a catalyst for change, when many of us and many organizations had to rethink what they stood for. And I'd love to honor your wonderful wife and partner, Elizabeth, with the three selves which you and her put forward and which ones we put forward first, which one actually represents who we truly are in your book, The New Alchemist. You mentioned this. Well, my wife is a photographer and a very imaginative one, and she loved taking photographs, but she wanted, she was very interested in identity. And her, her photographs try to explore people's identity. She makes them try to feel good. But one of the tricks she came up with was very interesting. She said, everybody that I meet, she said, there are at least three different selves there. 
is the public self and the private sector and so on. So she'd ask people, she'd go to their home and ask them to stand in their favorite room and then act out visually the different selves. So there would be the mother, there might be the, um, in her case, the photographer, or there was the, the money earning, the businesswoman, and so on. And what she discovered, she didn't tell people this, but uh, of the three selves that she had, the one that was nearest to the camera, which she chose, was that of a photographer, because that was the one bit of herself that she most loved, most keen on. But actually, the nearer you stood to the camera, the bigger you come in the picture when you get it developed. So in the picture she developed, there she was very large as a photographer, not quite so large as a cook and the mother, the mother hen. And then right at the back, she was there as my agent, the moneymaker, tiny <laughs> little figure. So I say to people, you can see how important I have in her life. <laughs> and, um, and when she'd deal with this as people, and they would be very surprised. I remember going to one man who was a banker. And uh, he, as a banker, he put himself at the back of the picture. He didn't realize that was where he was going to be. But right at the front, he came in his sort of casual clothes with a pile of books beside him. And it turned out, when we talked about it, that basically he wanted to write a novel. He was a dream, dreamt of being a novelist, and he hated being a banker. And uh, sure enough, within a year, he was a best-selling novelist and uh, had stopped being a banker. So it was a way of helping people to discover what their dream is, really, by, by means of photography. And, uh, but it was great fun uh, getting people to do that. But, I mean, you do, all of you have different personae or masks that you put on, um, depending who you're with. Um, so most of the time I'm a writer, but some of the time I'm a speaker. And so sometimes I pretend I'm a guru or something like that. And some of the time I'm just a visitor at an organization. And sometimes I'm just a writer. But it all depends who I'm with. And I can choose, of course, to put on a different mask or a different persona, as they call it in Greek. But people will find you out. I remember a friend of mine, he was he, in somewhere they had a, in London, they had a take your daughter to work day to try and persuade young people to go into business. So he took his very bright 15-year-old daughter to work with him. And I said to her, how did it go? She said, well, it was very strange. I was this man who turned out to be not like my father at all, uh, because he was totally different sitting behind a big desk at an office than the father, the cosy father that she knew at home. And she said, I didn't agree with him, actually. He found quite shattering. But uh, most of us play with our different masks that we put on. I remember going to um, a call center head office in New Delhi in India, and it was, it was a call sense that dealt with the complaints and so on of an American firm. And so all the, the people, they were basically mostly young women, would come in in the morning two hours early and they had to sit, change into American clothes, and then sit and watch an American soap comedy on the television 
and speak with an American accent while they watched it, so that when their customers spoke to them, the customers thought they were speaking to young Americans. And then they were, after their, their stint was finished, they changed back into their Indian saris and go off home and be Indian ladies and gentlemen. And I said, I wonder how on earth they managed to live like that. And then I thought, but I'm exactly the same. I go into London Business School where I was, and I'd wear a suit because I was teaching that day. But then I'd come home and put on a sweater and uh, sit by the fire, read a book. And I would be a different person. I'll pretend to be a different person. But of course, underneath, I wasn't really that different. Uh, but which was a real me. I had to be very clear about what my real me was, what my core values were, um, and what I thought was good and what I thought was wrong in life. And that's quite important. I'm a great follower of Aristotle. And Aristotle had a list of 12 virtues where, which were very important. And one of them was what he called courage. And courage, he meant, it's the courage to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what. So you have to work out what you really believe in and what you can't, uh, what's your sticking point, what people can't budge you on. So what are your core beliefs? What is your sticking point? What can't you be budged by? When my students used to arrive at the London Business School, they had two books in front of them, which were the core books for that first term. One was called The Meaning of Company Accounts, because they had to be able to read their balance sheet. And the second was, was a Sophocles play, Antigone, translated from Greek into English. And they looked at me in amazement, and they said, well, I can quite see why we've got the accounting book, but what are we doing reading a Greek play? And I said, well, you read it, and you'll see. Because the point was, Antigone was told by her uncle, the ruler of her city, Thebes, that she was not allowed to bury her husband, who had been killed in the, in the civil war. And the Greek religion said that if you don't bury your family properly, the Furies will pursue you for the rest of your eternal existence in hell. So it was very important for her to bury her husband properly. But her uncle said anybody touching her brother's dead body would be condemned to eternal imprisonment or death. So she had this problem. Was she willing to die in order to let her brother not be pursued in hell by the Furies? And I said, what do you do if your boss tells you to do something that you don't believe is right? Do you believe him because you're a boss, or do you believe your conscience? If he tells you to go and promote more cigarettes for sale in East Africa, which you think is really bad for them, do you do that? Or if he asks you to bribe some some officials from the Chinese government, because that's the custom of the country, do you do it or do you believe it's wrong? And you'll stand up for what you believe in. You'll have Aristotle's courage. And let me tell you, that's the point of Sophocles' play. Now, which are you going to be? Or are you going to be the boss? And are you going to ask people to do something that they believe is wrong? Or are you going to listen to them? So they went away quite thoughtful. And uh, those are the key issues, it seems to me. But first, what, who's the person behind these masks you put on? You may say, you know, you're, you're doing frightfully well. You've been promoted and you're earning X million pounds or euros a year. I'm not impressed. It's a mask. Who are you? And this becomes really important from a business dynamic 
perspective as well. And I love how you, in the essay, The Dilemma for Growth, put this, Charles, growth should always be the means to a greater purpose rather than an end in itself. And unfortunately, that end of shareholder value has become the purpose for businesses, but that is not the way it should be. And it's not the way it was meant to be to begin with. No, it wasn't. Um, that was why I keep asking people why. You know, why do you make money? And until they eventually they come with a purpose beyond themselves. I mean, a business is a community with a purpose. And um, basically, uh, no business succeeds unless they make a profit. That is a necessary condition of being a business. You can't live without making a profit. Just as a human being can't live without making some money. But if you, if you say that the necessary condition is the purpose, then you're making what philosophers call a category mistake. And a category mistake means you got, you're screwed up. You're taking a means and making it into a purpose. And so um, you eat in order to live. But if you turn the eating into a purpose, you become very fat and you're known as very greedy. And you will get ill and you will die because you overeat. And so you have made a category mistake, which is fatal. I used, when I was in hospital, I used to get very angry with them because they were trying to get more efficient and trying to make sure the patients did what they were told and kept to the meal times and didn't get out of bed without permission, etc., etc. And I found it very frightening. And I said to the chief nursing staff, I said, You've got it wrong. No organization can survive unless they are efficient. But if you turn that into a purpose, you're going to screw everything up. You've forgotten why you're there for. You're there for to make me better. And in order to make me better, you have to be efficient. But that's not the thing that you measure. What you measure of me getting better. I mean, schools make a great mistake. Schools have to school their children. They have to pass exams in order to get to the next layer of education. And that's a necessary condition, keeps the parents happy. But if you make it to the main purpose of the school, you'll forget what you're really there for, which is to make them independent human beings with values and knowing what they believe in and what their core sticking points are. So please make sure that you don't make a category error. Profit is necessary, but not enough. You've got to go beyond that and have a purpose. For instance, I think schools should be measured after about 20 years by what their children are doing in life. If we could find a proper way of making sure that we could measure happiness, for instance. Well, hopefully they're trying to turn out children who will not only be successful, but also content with their lives, be happy. Yeah, and I loved what you said about education. In education, all the problems we are presented with have already been solved. They were closed problems with proven answers. Right. And we're not taught how to learn. We're not how, taught how to critically think, but rather just to retain information. Yes, I mean, teachers treat their children as empty computers and they're filling their memory cards. But actually, they don't actually need the teacher to do that. They can go on Google to do that, actually. So they theoretically already know everything the teacher knows and they need to know how to go to access it. But they don't know all the questions the teacher doesn't know the answer to. It's no good answering to our mathematics teacher who you should marry. He hasn't a clue. 
And he might just say, oh, well, make sure they earn 10,000 euros a month. But that's not going to satisfy you. So he doesn't have the answer to the important questions of life. He doesn't know who you should marry. He doesn't know what job you should do. He doesn't know what house you should be, what country you should live in. He doesn't know what language you should learn. None of these things can your teachers answer for you, even if it's the best school in the world. And he's the best teacher. He, he can just ask, you've got to answer those questions. So get used to answering your own questions. Don't expect the teacher, uh, just because he's got the answers at the back of his textbook, to know more than you do. He knows more than you do about his subject, but he doesn't know more than you do about your subject, which is yourself. So, you know, you've got to work it out. And one of the things you talked about, Charles, and you grew up in Clain in Ireland, near the Jesuit school of Clongos. And the Jesuits say it's the first seven years where the mind is formed. And you say for, about education and about parenting that a lot of the onus lies with the parents. The parents need to take responsibility to help the children and stop blaming the education system. But remember that there's an onus and responsibility on parents as well. Well, they mustn't interfere. I mean, basically, children are born with curiosity. Unfortunately, we lose curiosity as we grow older because we think there are answers and we think the teacher has them. So if we listen to what the teacher says, we get on. But actually, what you have is even more valuable. It's curiosity, which is the start of creativity. If you're curious for things, you'll, you'll, have, you'll go out and try to find an answer. And that's, a, that's wonderful. And the trouble is, as you get older, you lose curiosity because you feel naked if you don't know the answer to things. And so you look for authority. I mean, I know when I was started off in my career as an oil executive in Malaya, Malaysia, I was very curious. I couldn't work out why they did things in the way they did and uh, why they didn't, for instance, use big rail wagons to bring the oil up the railway to the middle in the middle of the country and where they sent it by road in smaller in lorries with drums and i thought you know they must be mad so i wrote a little paper explaining how much money they saved they sent it in big rail wagons and my boss looked at me and he said uh, how long have you been in this company handy <laughs> and i said uh uh, yes, sir. And he said, how long do you think this, com this company's been in this country? And I said, 20 years, sir. He said, no, 75. Do you really think that you know more in your six months than this company knows in 75 years? And I said, no, sir. Sorry, sir. He said, well, next time, just as somebody who knows. Well, I tell you, within seven years, they were using rail wagons. <laughs> I was right after all, but my silly boss wouldn't allow me to prove my curiosity and go out and work something out and try it out. He thought he knew better, and he didn't. And parents are the same. They don't always know better than their children, and uh, their children are, are often very wise. I mean, I asked my children when the British had their referendum about the European Union, I said, what are you going to believe or remain? And they both, and they were aged, what, 10 and 6, they both said they wanted to remain. And I said, why? And so the 10-year-old boy said, well, because I might want to go to university in Europe. And, 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 and so I get, apparently, it's free if I remember the European Union. 
And the daughter said, because we could have croissant for breakfast. <laughs> and I thought both of them were absolutely right. From the mouths uh, of babes. And, uh, but neither else would have occurred to, to myself or my wife. Uh, and I mean, it was very good for them to work that out. And uh, absolutely right, yes. The Erasmus program is great. And yes, indeed, French food is remarkably more interesting than English food. So I gave them top marks. Uh, <laughs> and they, they were very pleased to, to have got, got rewarded by us. They thought, ah, it did their self-confidence a lot of good. Absolutely. And, and one of the things you said there about your time in Malay and Malaysia, the management versus leadership conundrum, these two words get confused quite a bit. And you dedicate a lot of the book to this. And a lot of your work over time has been about the difference between the two. I'd love if you shared your thoughts on this. Well, I used to find that people loved to manage, to be managers, but didn't like to be managed. And I began to wonder why it was, and why. And then eventually, I discovered that, and I went into intellectual organisations, the ones which basically did intellectual work, like universities or like law firms or consulting firms, even who hired people for their brains, really, and their talents, and they were professionals. And hospitals are the same. That basically the word manager applied to people who were in charge of things. Things like, say, the catering, or things like the communication system, or things like the technology, or things like the structure of the organization. And you can manage things. And leaders were the people who were in charge of people. So you had you know, the leader of teams and they had the leader of uh, projects, not the manager of teams, you had the leader of teams. And so I came to the conclusion that, uh, yes, you should only use the word manage when you're dealing with things or systems and lead when you're dealing with people. Because the trouble is that people think you can manage people. And if you call people human resources. It sounds as if they are things. So you think you could boss them around and tell them to do this and that. Whereas a leader, they, they don't have to follow you unless you can persuade them and excite them and give them a common purpose. So leadership is basically an art, which not everybody has. A manager is a technique and a, a skill. But don't try applying managing and treat people like objects. Thank you, Charles Handy, author of The Second Curve, and thank you to Aidan McCullen for sharing this conversation with my listeners from his podcast, The Innovation Show. Next time, we'll hear part two, where Charles Handy shares his model of the Shamrock organisation, the citizen organisation concept, how efficiency can be the curse of effectiveness, the donut principle, how individuals have negative power to stop things, the White Stone story from Revelations, the importance of curiosity, boredom and itchiness, and Aristotle's eudaimonia and active happiness. I feel confident you'll agree with me that leaders should still pay attention to Charles Handy's quiet wisdom. Till next time, ciao for now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.